What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Fed Watch. My name is Ansel Lindner, but my co-host CK is not quite on the horn yet. Oh, um, I'm here, baby. Oh, don't worry. How you, don't how worry. You doing, CK? I showed up right in the nick of time. Yeah. So how you doing, man? Busy day? I'm doing busy day. We got less than seven days until Bitcoin Amsterdam. So obviously a fury of activity to make sure that happens without a hitch. Uh, I did get a chance to catch a little bit of what Paul Strokes was saying. The man is very, very smart, although I don't necessarily agree with him on drive chains. But yeah, excellent interview. And I am really excited to jump into a really, really action-packed and pretty busy agenda we got here in terms of FedWatch. So a lot to talk about in macro. Yeah, tons to talk about. I mean... This week has been extremely fast-paced with the, there's some comments by Williams, who is the president of the New York Fed. So we have a transcript we're going to go over of a, a speech that he made. We have, of course, market turmoil. The UN came out and tried to dictate or demand monetary policy changes from the central banks. The oil stuff with OPEC going on today and yesterday about them cutting production. Also, we have the referendums that have happened in Ukraine and the, the seasons are starting to change. So it seems like this part of the year right now is just a lot of things coming to a head and we're going to try to cover as much as we can here. So much coming to a head. And for all the listeners of FedWatch, this is stuff that we have been talking about for a long time. Everything here in terms of how geopolitical incentives are playing out, it's not like a huge surprise. None of these things are quote-unquote black swans if you're actually paying attention. Exactly, exactly. An another admin note I have up front here is, guys, check out FedWatch Clips channel on YouTube. I've been putting a bunch of clips up there, and now I'm actually putting the whole episode of FedWatch up there. So check out FedWatch Clips to keep up with all of our episodes if, if you don't want to go through the, or if you miss a week and you don't want to go through the full three-hour broadcast or whatever, you can always check out FedWatch Clips. I did put that that one clip up there from the Zoltan episode. You remember that, where I detailed out uh, all the different pillars that, why his pillars were wrong and uh, why I think he's not going, he's going, not going deep enough. He needs to go one layer deeper. Uh, but anyway, that's up on FedWatch Clips now. So check out that, that channel. Hey, that was some great analysis, Ansel. And uh, I do know there's a little bit of housekeeping happening in terms of FedWatch and where all the content lives and stuff like that. So some clarity will emerge soon, I promise. But you can support the show using Podcasting 2.0 and stream some stats over to Ansel and I. So Ansel, I need to give you the keys, the keys to that. But yeah, I got that set up pretty recently. Awesome. Yeah. And also, I do a, a pretty long form write up on Bitcoin Magazine for each episode. So check that out. I've seen people tweeting about that. So follow me on Twitter and read those posts when they come out. Yep, absolutely. One last little reminder is the newest issue of Bitcoin Magazine, the Orange Party issue with Nayib Bukele's awesome, awesome op-ed inside of it is going to be dropping later this month. I believe the first shipment comes to our warehouses by mid-October. So really excited for that one. Go and subscribe to to our go subscribe to the magazine right now at store.bt store.bitcoinmagazine.com. Use promo code BM Live. Get a subscription right now, and you will actually get the the older issue. You'll get the censorship resistant issue, which is absolutely amazing. And then you're gonna get followed up immediately by getting the Orange Party issue. So get get a, a quick one two punch. Two of my favorite magazines that we've ever produced. Go subscribe today. All right, Ansel, that's enough for me. Let's get into the show. All right, so we have to start each show with a Bitcoin chart. So, Chris, can we pull up chart number one? There it is. We've had a good couple days here kind of going towards this diagonal trend line. So we'll see. We've held the bottom here for now. We're going up. We're, we're still pretty correlated with stocks, but I, I like this, this price action over the last couple of days. If you go to the next slide, that is heavily a correlated with stocks. It's like every time, every time stocks rally, people leverage on Bitcoin every time. <laughs> yeah, well, this is a, I mean, the, the, I, I've talked about this the last couple of weeks and also on my newsletter is this first ever weekly bullish divergence. 
that did lock in last week. And so since then, we've, we've seen that little pop this week in the price. So we'll see if this has some power, predictive power for breaking up from here. But I thought I would just put this back on the screen for everybody to see the first ever weekly bullish divergence. I think it's pretty bullish. A any other comments on price, Christian? I mean, you brought up the this weekly bullish divergence last week. So, yep. I mean, I, I really do think that if you zoom out, we are in this crazy kind of stage in Bitcoin's life where Bitcoin is currently just another asset. It's heavily correlated with the stock market. The same people that trade Bitcoin are also trading other stocks, stuff like that. But fundamentally, Bitcoin is different. Bitcoin is actually a physical network for monetary settlement, for Bitcoin settlement. And that activity is not like company activity. It's not, it's not affected the same way that organizations and businesses with cash flow are going to be affected as we continue to move forward in this monetary hurricane. So I really do think, I don't know if it's now, I don't know if it's in a year, I don't know if it's a few months, but at some point, scarcity plus utility will <laughs> differentiate Bitcoin. So maybe we're, we're seeing the beginning of that here. I don't know. Yeah, that's a great point. We should see some divert or not divergence, but decoupling of these things. I mean, Bitcoin has performed very well since the great financial crisis, of course. And that was a big change in the availability of money. And people obviously get it mixed up here with that, oh, we've done so much QE, there must be so much money out there, so much liquidity. But in reality, what we have had is a monetary shortage because people don't have enough money to pay their debt, to service their debt. And so when we get into this a credit crisis era, which we are getting into a more acute credit crisis, monetary value is extremely important. So I think that Bitcoin could see a bid from that direction. I mean, we saw that with the pound when Great Britain or the UK had their issues last week. The volume of Bitcoin in pounds shot through the roof, I think, to a four or five year high. So, you know, we're going to see Bitcoin get that kind of bid and possibly decouple from stocks, like you said. Let's roll the next chart, yeah? Well, that's all the charts I have for today. <laughs> I didn't I didn't bring any oil chart or any dollar DXY chart or anything like that. We have a ton of stuff to talk about from all of these different uh, sectors. And the first one I wanted to cover was this speech from the Fed, sorry, the New York Fed's president, and that's John Williams. So yeah, go to the next slide, please, Chris. This was a speech that he gave on Monday. And it was these this is a transcript of his prepared remarks. So it's, you know, it was written before the UN stuff came out. It was written before the OPEC stuff came out. So this is kind of what they were thinking maybe this weekend or last week. And so I wanted to go through this a little bit here today. If you go to the next slide, the big thing I want to talk about is how they're defining inflation. I thought this was a crazy way to define inflation. So let's go through this. They call Williams here calls this the inflation onion. The sources of high inflation are, men, are many and complex. Okay, first, right off the bat, shouldn't it be money printing? I mean, that's pretty simple. It's many and complex. Okay, well, that right should trigger your thinking. Okay, he's talking about stuff other than money printing. He's talking about macro stuff, right? So let's continue. They are stretched uh, and they stretch across the globe. Nearly all economies are experiencing unusually high rates of inflation. To better understand how that happened and what it portends, it is useful to think of inflation in terms of three distinct layers of an onion. In this analogy, the onion's outer layer consists of prices of globally traded commodities such as lumber, steel, grains, and oil. They have experienced a surge in demand as the global economy has rebounded from the pandemic downturn. So I'll add in here that people typically think of the commodity prices as the base layer of other prices. And he's saying that commodity prices are just the superficial outside layer of this onion. So I don't know if this is kind of a subtle dig at people saying 
that they're not looking deep enough into the sources of inflation. But let's let's continue reading here. In addition, Russia's war in Ukraine and resulting actions have caused energy prices to soar. Well, at least he includes resulting actions because it's actually the sanctions that are causing energy prices to soar. These higher costs get passed on as higher prices for consumers. I am sure everyone in this room has been forced to manage skyrocketing costs on important supplies over the past two years. Okay, now we get into the middle layer here. The middle layer of the inflation onion is made up of products, especially durable goods like appliances, furniture, and autos that have been affected by severe supply chain disruptions. So first layer, commodities. Second layer, products, durable goods. Nothing yet about money printing. (laughs) Have you noticed that? In his inflation onion, the first two layers, nothing about money printing. It's got to be somewhere, right? So let's keep reading. This imbalance, I'm going to the next paragraph here. This imbalance between supply and demand has contributed to large price increases. To give some examples, prices for furniture rose over 13% last year. New cars were up nearly 12% and used vehicles skyrocketed an astonishing 50%. The innermost layer of the onion consists of underlying inflation. Oh, my God. That is amazing. So you're saying that inflation underlies inflation. That is a great definition, Fed president. What the hell? Like, So the, at the root of everything, of at the bottom of this inflation stack is inflation. There's no talk about money printing whatsoever. It's just... It's so confused in my mind. Like, what are they even talking about here? Almost done here. Which reflects the overall balance between supply and demand in the economy. Oh, man. So supply and demand affects prices, which underlies prices. It's just so crazy. So I'm going to stop there. CK, any reaction to that? those definitions there? Yeah, I mean, the hype, like, this is what's wrong with our current monetary regime is that even the high priests of the monetary regime don't even know what the fuck is happening. They don't. And and that's the whole issue is that it, it, it is an opaque system that no one can actually use to effectively allocate capital. So this is why I'm so bullish on Bitcoin because Bitcoin makes it so that anyone with even a smartphone can effectively validate and audit the entire thing. So it's like, People are like, where is Bitcoin a thousand X, a hundred X better than the existing system? Like it's an infinity better. It's like something that no one understands to something that anyone can understand. So I, I, yeah, I mean, th- this is what's like, this is the whole problem. And then ultimately, I think this is really informed by you, but nothing grinds my gears more than people referring to, let's just say, an economy that's not working well, a, a the destruction of globalization, the breakdown of supply chains, and then just blanket calling that inflation. Like, yep. it is beyond stupid. Like, I want to I want to call it something else, but it is just like, it's beyond stupid. And, and yet, it's common practice. Like, that's what everyone does. Literally everyone, including Bitcoin proponents. It's like, no, like... You need to use proper definitions. Like we need to be calling these things the right things. Otherwise, we're going to like, hey, raising rate, is that going to fix supply chains? Like, no, it's not. Like, obviously not. But yet that's what the Fed's doing. Like, it just it makes no sense. Like if you can't identify something appropriately, how can you even try to fix it? And then just zooming yeah. out, like no one knows what the hell is happening. No one knows what the hell is happening. Well, if that triggers you, man, guess what the UN is writing about on our next segment? It is all about that. They're talking about how, you know, the economies are crashing, all of this stuff, but it's inflation. And I'm just like, oh my God. So anyway, let's let's go on to the next quote. I'm going to skip slide number five and go to slide number six, please, Chris. And that is the economic outlook. So this is, again, Fed President, New York Fed President Williams, and here's his economic outlook. So what does tighter monetary policy mean for the economy? We are already seeing some of the effects. Broad measures of financial conditions, including borrowing and mortgage rates and equity prices, have become significantly less supportive of spending. This has led to a decline in activity in the housing market and signs of slowing in consumer and business investment spending. As this continues, I expect real GDP to be close to flat this year 
and to grow modestly in 2023. Now, I don't know why I highlighted that particular sentence other than that's what I've been saying is we're going to have close to flat on the real GDP this year. But I think this is interesting because what what is the effect of what they're trying to do? Like, let's say the Fed could actually mechanically do what they're what they say they want to do. Well, the result would be bankruptcies. The result would be worse supply chains, right? The result would be all of these things in the economy getting worse, which are the source of high prices. So it's weird. They're, they're, I think it's kind of backwards here that people think that deflation or deflationary pressures always lead to lower prices, but they don't. In this case, when we have a deflationary pressure, provided by bankruptcies and credit contraction, we actually it actually leads to higher prices. So if you're fighting those higher prices by more deflationary pressure provided by the Fed, they're actually exacerbating the problem. They're pushing us yes. right into the gutter, right? So yeah, yeah what, what are your thoughts on that? It's like supply chains are punching producers and consumers in the face and then the the fed is coming with like hey let's just come in with some undercut this is for your own good this is yeah. to fix the punch in the face you know if your gut hurts maybe their face hurts less like yeah exactly like what else are they doing like it's unbelievable it honestly is unbelievable and then they've yeah, tricked well, the entire rest of the the entire rest of the the idiotic central banking cartel to do the same thing, and then Britain is the first to pivot. So it is it is really his like honestly it, it's 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 hilarious watching it. it. It truly is absolutely mind blowing stupidity. Well, do you know what makes it make sense? It only makes sense <laughs> if the Fed doesn't do anything. If all they're doing is narrative management, because then it makes sense. Their, their narrative is we will bring down inflation. That's the narrative. And then people are supposed to go out there and have a self-fulfilling prophecy and bring down inflation. So that's, I think the only thing that can square the circle is the Fed is doing this counterproductive stuff because it's about the narrative. It's not about the mechanical nature of what they're doing. I mean, with this, and you've been calling this out for a long time, Ansel, but I think this is the tide rolling back on the Fed. And, you know, mm. we're seeing that they are, in fact, swimming naked. Like, really, it's like, <laughs> it's like they're pushing this narrative, which is just like, if you just step back and you take, you know, a, a slightly educated look at the situation, you, you, take, you, you, you take your filters off. It's like, wow, this is absolutely idiotic. Yeah, it's totally backwards. But let, let me finish up this last part here. This this will be the it for Williams. And he says, bringing down inflation, underlying inflation, which remember underlying, uh, underlying inflation is what underlies inflation. That's his definition. But the, the inner layer of the inflation onion will take longer. But with monetary policy helping to restore balance between demand and supply, I see inflation moving close to our 2% goal in the next few years. So that is kind of their shot that it's going to last longer than we think they're not close to pivot he's using the term a few years so yeah that's it man that's up that's all from william yeah our monetary system doesn't work the high priest of the monetary system the only people that can interpret the jibber jab can't even interpret it they're all idiots they're all completely <laughs> lost they're all a bunch of buffoons with strange incentives and bitcoin fixes this so like I'm going to I'm going to get off my soapbox, but ultimately this is about having an economic system that people can actually use to allocate capital and that it just does not exist today. And we're really like in plain sight, seeing it in the most obvious way possible. Exactly. Exactly. Another thing that struck me reading this transcript was something that came out about Powell's recent FOMC statements where they put it through this algorithm and they try to uh, you know, evaluate what level of education you need to understand what, the, what these people are saying. And you can look at a history of Fed FOMC press conferences. And like during certain years, I think it was Bernanke when you had to be some level of college to understand everything that he's saying. And this recent Powell press conference was like fifth grade. So... I think they're really dumbing down their rhetoric and this 
uh, is another example of that. They're just dumbing it down as much as they can to try to force a narrative. But yeah, what do you think? They're using the same examples as Shrek in the Shrek movie to explain (laughs) an ogre. You know, with the economy is an onion, and when you peel it back, <laughs> you realize the whole thing's bullshit. Oh, it is man. hilarious if they are dumbing it down. And honestly, it was pretty difficult to understand, you know, the speech in general. So I don't know if it's actually fifth grade level, but that would make sense again if it's, if it's, if they're just trying to manage expectations and they're just trying to influence the market in that way versus actually being able to pull the levers. Absolutely. Hey guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. Bitcoin Magazine and the team that brought you the world's largest Bitcoin conference is bringing the mission of hyper-Bitcoinization global with the inaugural European gathering this fall. Bitcoin Amsterdam takes place October 12th through 14th at the beautiful Westergaas venue in the heart of the city. Join thousands of Bitcoiners for three days of curated Bitcoin content that is relevant to the emerging Bitcoin scene in Europe and the global movement. Confirmed speakers include Dr. Adam Back, Alex Gladstein, Greg Foss, Ray Youssef, and many, many more. This will be an immersive conference, which includes hands-on engagements at our proof-of-workshop stage, as well as exclusive content for VIP whales in the deep. Bitcoin Amsterdam's exclamation point will be a massive Bitcoin party and music festival that you won't want to miss. The European installment of Sound Money Fest takes place on day three of the event, October 14th, and admission is included with GA and whale passes. Check out all the details at b.tc forward slash conference and use promo code BMLive for 10% off. Ticket prices increase on August 21st, so grab your tickets today for €299 for a GA ticket and €3,499 for VIP whale passes. If you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's both a free and paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts break down what's going on in the markets so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. All right, man. Should we move on to the UN? The UN trying to push around the Fed. Let's do it. From one clown show to the next. Yeah. All right, Chris, can you go slide number seven there? So this is a article that hit the headlines, I believe it was on Monday. This is from the Wall Street Journal. UN calls for Fed, other central banks to halt interest rate increases. Chris actually sent this to me on Telegram in a DM. He's like, hey, I can't wait to talk about this on on Wednesday. But if we go to the next slide, this is the actual report that these articles are talking about. Can we get slide number eight up, please, Chris? So this is the trade and development report. And this is a biannual report or whatever. It comes out after Q1 and after Q3. And this is where all of this stuff, UN is calling for policy change in the central banks. Now, right off the bat, I wanted to put this cover up here because what struck me is like, it doesn't show happy people working internationally, you know, at the UN, maybe some flags in the background, people shaking hands and smiling like everything's okay. No, what it shows is a cracked globe, a deglobalized world, what's happening to the world. I just think this is pretty amazing when you think about the visuals that they're portraying here is shit's going wrong. The world is cracking up. What, what do you think of that initial visual here, CK? No, it, it absolutely is spot on. It just kind of shows you that, you know, there's definitely pain. It's also interesting, like, I don't know if it, that's like fire on the on the back, the bottom left of the globe, or if that's like the sun. I don't know exactly what that is, yeah. but it is extremely ominous imagery. Yeah, absolutely. I thought it was crazy. Okay, let's go to the, the meat of this issue. So can you go to the next slide, please? All right. Yeah, I just want to so, say that yeah. it, it, it is funny when like there's like some like level of honesty, especially when it comes to like these reports or these visuals or whatever. And it, it does make you take a step back because you just assume like there's no honesty that they're going to try to like paint some strange picture. And then you have to see like, wow, how bad is the situation if they're being forced to, you know, move away from maybe like a positive bias? 
Yeah, dude, you're re reading my mind because that's what we're going to do on a lot of this stuff. I actually agree with. It's just when they get to their policy stuff is the what I don't agree with. And I, I was very surprised with the honesty of this report until, of course, you get to the implementation, which is all socialist and communist stuff. But OK, let's get on with this. So with financial entanglements since the global financial crisis becoming increasingly global, complex, uh, complex, unanticipated shocks, including outbreaks and financial panic or extreme price volatility, or a combination of external triggers are a present danger. Monetary tightening poses additional risk to the real economy and the financial sector. Given the high leverage of non-financial businesses, rising borrowing costs could cause a steep increase in non-performing loans and trigger a cascade of bankruptcies. With direct price and markup controls ruled out as politically unacceptable, and if monetary authorities are unable to stabilize inflation quickly, governments might resort to additional fiscal tightening. This would only help precipitate a sharper global recession. And that's exactly what we are talking about there, that this monetary tightening is going to exacerbate the problem. Uh, it's not actually going to fix the problem. And they're, they're calling it out right here in this UN report. All right, let's go to the next one here. Finally, what does seem likely oh sorry chris go back to the last one i was just on the next paragraph finally what does seem likely is that the impact of fed tightening will be more severe for vulnerable emerging markets with high public and private debt substantial foreign exchange exposure a high dependence on food and fuel imports and higher current account deficits according to one recent estimate an increase in the united states interest rates of one percent reduces real GDP by 0.5% in advanced economies and by 0.8% in emerging economies after three years. So I think this is interesting here because they are saying that emerging markets are much more exposed to a rising dollar, obviously, and it's going to hurt emerging markets more. And that's one thing that I have been saying. That's one thing we have been saying on FedWatch. Of course, there's been other strong dollar people out there in macro talking about this too. But now they, everyone's admitting it. Everyone knows, and they're they're starting to make sense. So, any feedback on that one, CK? No feedback. We've been saying it for a long time on FedWatch. This is where the alpha is. <laughs> All right, let's go to next slide. So here, here is a wow moment to me. They they mentioned the shadow banking sex, sector. So the large role of the shadow banking sector which is really just the euro dollar system, remember that's offshore unregulated banks, means central banks have limited capacity to control credit expansion in large segments of the financial system. That is even more true for central banks in many developing economies, as they have more fragile financial systems, higher debt denominated in foreign currency, and greater exposure to commodity price shocks. In fact, in fact many of them began to raise interest rates already in late 2021. All right, continuing on. Today, inflation is caused by a mixture of disruptions in global supply chains, high container shipping costs, the impact of war on key sectors, sanctions on key sectors, higher markups, commodity market speculators, and the ongoing uncertainty in an evolving, pan evolving pandemic. So again, what don't they mention here? Money printing. They don't mention money printing. So all of this inflation that they're talking about here is not due to money printing. Of course, people will call me out and say, oh, you're, are you saying that there is no money printing? And I'm, I'm saying, no, there, most of the money printing happened before 2008, the great financial crisis. And since then, we've just been at a very low level of credit creation, just enough to keep the lights on. And that's about it. And as we have these temporary shocks, we're never going to be getting out of it. We're always going to be sliding back into this low growth, low inflation situation. You know, th this is kind of like the, the fugoid cycle of deflation. So what's mm. actually happening is from 2008, we've been kind of going into this deflationary cycle and it's just been intensifying. And the effectively what people are characterizing is like the insanity that is our current economy and like the lack of being able to make any sort of logical assessment of what's going on, like they're just blanket labeling that inflation. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, maybe there's some like money printing, maybe there's 
there there is like reallocation of capital into different pools but ultimately the entire system itself is kind of just like effectively floundering to death you know if you see a again the, the fugoid cycle is this idea of like when a plane is kind of diving and it's trying to like stop and and like you know control itself and, and reclaim up it, it actually gets more and more volatile as it's trying to like stabilize throughout that process so it's been a it's a very good mental model for kind of like thinking through you know how these things play out yeah exactly i, I still need to study up on that and listen to some bitcoin tina i guess because he's he's all over that hey matthew pines so we had matthew him on the pines, show okay. but he 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 definitely was one of the first people to really kind of like talk about how how we're kind of seeing that in the economy cool cool yeah i saw he started a, episode one of the pines pod so he's got his own podcast going on now everyone's got to start a podcast at some point in bitcoin that's how it works <laughs> yeah yeah all right so let's continue with this in this situation central banks cannot bring inflation down at a socially acceptable cost instead supply chain disruptions and labor shortages require appropriate industrial policies to increase the supply of key items in the medium term. This must be accompanied by sustained global policy coordination and liquidity support to help countries fund and manage these chart uh, changes. And while I, un while I underline sustained, <laughs> I underline sustained global policy coordination because that's not possible. I mean, look at what's happening with the sanctions. Half the world is on one side of a major conflict and half the world is on the other side of a major conflict. And now they're trying to say we need sustained global policy coordination. No way on earth is that going to happen. I mean, that this goes into is you start seeing what they want. They start sounding like WEF, you know, management, management economy, socialist and communist policies, et cetera, et cetera. But got anything for this or should I move on to the next one? Let's keep going. All right. Next one, please there, Chris. All right. The scarring effects of these trends reflect what some observers have dubbed hyper hysteresis or sorry, super hysteresis, whereby external shocks lead not only to a permanent loss of output due to recession, but also to a permanent reduction in the potential growth rate because the decline in capital formation and in aggregate demand lowers labor productivity growth. In many developing countries, this threat has been amplified by a process of stalled industrialization, and in some cases, premature, premature de-industrialization, rooted in the rapid liberalization of both the capital and current account under structural adjustment programs in the 80s and 90s, blah, 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 blah. But what this says, what I thought that was awesome is... This is the deflationary cycle. They're nailing it on the head here. This super hysteresis where the shocks lead to permanent loss of growth and output. Neck, it kicked the can, but the next one is lower growth, lower inflation. The kick the can, lower growth, lower inflation. And that's what they're detailing here. While interest rate hikes can fight temporary inflation pressures and help contain expectations, they also, as noted earlier, add to household business costs. In this sense, they will change, sorry, they will cause damage to the productive economy and increase exposure to future supply side shocks, perpetuating the line of policy action that privileges financial markets over non-financial businesses. And again, this is exactly what we're talking about. So the world is facing a systemic crisis and only systemic action can solve it. So now they get into their guiding principles for what they want the policy to get to. So let's go to the next slide. I mean, before we do, go ahead. can I just yeah. jump in and, and like, this is something that is, is actually, I feel like is very common that we kind of see like good analysis. And then the assumption is the market doesn't work. We need coordinated top-down decision-making to fix it. That is always the assumption. A lot of yep. you see similar assumptions from environmental groups regarding you know, maybe, you know, how we're treating the planet that I, I don't want to stick to one narrative, but it becomes very obvious to see that these organizations operate within a similar framework and their bias is that the market doesn't work. And that's a problem, frankly, like that is one of the key problems. Exactly. It's always more intervention. Intervention begets intervention. And eventually you have 
every single sector, every single facet of the economy under the thumb of the central planner. And guess what they need for that? I think they need a CBDC. They need a CBDC, but I also think that when that does happen, or if it does happen, and it inevitably leads to worse outcome, they're still going to blame the market. Like they're still going to blame <laughs> yeah. the market. They're still—it's their fault. They're still going to blame the market. Yep, it's always a market failure. Everything is blamed on a market failure. Maybe the market's right, the but... only thing that doesn't fail. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. There's no such thing as a market failure. But let's get onto these policy programs that they they say that all these policy programs should have the following elements. They need to contain inflation. So policymakers should avoid an undue reliance on monetary tightening and forswear a premature return to austerity budget. So don't go into austerity. Uh, you spend, spend, spend. Managing growth is the second one. Monetary and fiscal rules need to be better adapted, not just to respond to shocks, but also to support the much needed structural changes in the economy, such as industrialization in developing countries and the energy transition. Investment first, there needs to be higher public investment in economic and social infrastructure to boost employment, raise productivity, improve energy efficiency, and reduce greenhouse gas emissions in an internationally coordinated effort. So, of course, an internationally coordinated effort is never going to work. Also, if you want to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, you're not going to be raising productivity. So all of these things are counterproductive or counterfactual. They'll never work together. But if you go to the next slide here is these are their last two recommendations. So I wanted to read through these a little bit more in depth. So leveling up while antitrust measures and income policies to boost productivity can help achieve more equitable distribution of income. Redistributive policies can help mitigate unbalanced outcomes. These include the reinforcement of public service provisions and progressive tax reform, such as wealth and windfall taxes, together with a reduction of regressive tax cuts and loopholes. So again, this is straight out of pretty much the Communist Manifesto. This is what we want to do. We want to redistribute income. We want to cut down all of your tax loopholes, and we want to have just raise taxes and, and redistribute all that wealth. So let's go on to the next one. A new Bretton Woods. In an in independent world, sorry, in an interdependent world, calling for greater ambition from domestic policymakers requires rethinking global economic governance from a development perspective. Again, rethinking things, redoing things. This is all a WEF calling card. It's a global Marxist calling card. Almost eight decades from, on from the foundational conference in New Hampshire, the international financial architecture is struggling to address the imbalances and inequities of a hyper-globalized world order. So what I would respond to that is, guess what? We're deglobalizing. That's what we're doing. So we it can't respond to a hyper-globalized order. Well, that's okay because we're deglobalizing and we're going to get new money, right? We're going to get Bitcoin is going to service this new deglobalized order. So I, that's that's all I have from the the UN here. CK, any further comments? I mean, I, I think that I think that they're they're right that we we are deglobalizing that hyper-globalization, and I think credit fueled fiat money probably all of all of that has created a lot of inequality again i would say that's that is a centralized top-down decision making issue not necessarily a market issue but bitcoin is the new britain woods where and i i actually i want to go to kind of your talk track through what was wrong with what's his face zoltan's analysis a few a few weeks ago because I think that you framed it perfectly on that podcast, which is that the framework of everyone working together, this kind of framework that let the Paris Climate Treaty work, this UN world, like of everyone getting together and working, you know, to have some goal, like that framework is not reality in any way. And like, we're actually moving into a different sort of framework. So maybe I'll hand it over to you, Ansel. Like, can you repeat how you kind of architect or how you uh, articulate what is going on globally and why this type of like nation state level coordination as like the basis of your analysis just makes absolutely no sense? 
Yeah, well, just to reiterate what that was a couple weeks ago, Zoltan had three pillars. It was like cheap labor in China, cheap, no, sorry, cheap Mexican labor in the United States, cheap products from China and something else cheap. Maybe it was cheap international commodities or something like that. But what I said was he he wasn't going deep enough and he he needed to talk about what enabled those things in the first place. And that was a peaceful free trade era. And he said that in the sentence above that, he said, in this glo- in this global era of peace, these are the th- three pillars. Well, no, <laughs> he just skipped over the whole important part, talking about peace. And what have we seen since deglobalization started really taking hold? We see, of course, the Ukraine-Russia thing. We see Pakistan. We see some border conflicts between Tajikistan and I think it was uh, Turkmenistan. We see stuff happening in Sri Lanka. We see stuff happening in Iran. All around the ring the rimland of the world island that is eurasia we see conflict even the the rhetoric going on in china with taiwan now all of that is not peaceful rhetoric and it's not good for business so what's going to happen credit is going to be affected credit and global credit is going to decline it's going to contract so in the in the previous era where we had peace and good business climate and everybody could get a loan and all of these big all of these countries emerging markets even the western advanced economies could get access to cheap credit and could build up then we needed the market naturally chose a credit based money for that because it was highly elastic and it could expand but now as we're going the other direction what's needed is a money that is resistant to credit collapse and a credit-based money is not that. You need to have a commodity-based money. Most likely Bitcoin is going to be chosen for this. So the natu- we, we don't need central planning. We just need to let the market go and the market will naturally tend towards a, a credit, uh, a money that is resistant to credit collapse. Does that make sense, CK? Yeah, it, it makes complete, it makes complete sense. And it, I think that if you if you look at the incentives, Bitcoin's game theory makes a lot of sense right now. The way that the world is situated, Bitcoin's game theory makes a lot of sense. And I think the next topic, which we need to get to because we're running out of time, okay. also is another point in why get Bitcoin's game theory makes sense. But let's talk about OPEC. Okay, so the, yeah, this this recent stuff with OPEC. So if you go to the next slide, Chris, this was a story that came out. Pretty much people started talking about it yesterday. I mean, there have been rumors about what OPEC was going to do at their in-person meeting. So this will be the first in-person meeting that they've had since COVID. And they were going to discuss their quotas, you know, their production schedules and all this stuff. So some things have been leaking out in the weeks leading up to this meeting. It started as they were going to cut production by 500,000 barrels, then a million barrels a day. Then now yesterday, it kind of leaked that they were considering 2 million barrels per day. Actually, I think this leaked somebody walking into the conference, like mentioned this. And so like, then they, they made that a headline, but if you go to the next slide, this, this article made its way or made its rounds this morning. I saw it first on zero hedge and on Twitter and they, they framing this OPEC move as a counterattack against the fed. And I, I, can see people really jumping on this narrative. So I want to kind of nip this in the bud if I can, but let me read what this article claims. So he says that no one knows how big the cuts will be. And frankly, it doesn't matter how large they are. Instead, the message is clear. The Fed can crash global GDP in their fight against oil. But OPEC wields a much larger stick and will cut production even faster. In fact, OPEC will do whatever it takes if the Fed continues on this path. OPEC has drawn a line under the price of oil and told the Fed that it is that it's wasting its time. OPEC controls the price of oil, and oil is the world's central banker, not the Fed. I just think this this analysis really caught on this morning, and I think it's completely wrong because the Fed would does not or OPEC does not want to cause more pain. They don't they want their customers to do be doing well so that the economy, you know, they can continue to demand oil and buy oil and, and all that stuff. They wouldn't purposely destroy demand 
it just sounds like counterintuitive. So I, I wanted to nip that one before people kind of ran with that idea. But if we look at, let's see where I have this on the, where I have this on the slides. I think it's the next slide. Yeah, the next slide is OPEC Plus. So I wanted to read a little bit from this article just real quick. Of course, I'll include these in the show notes or the write-up to this that will come out on Bitcoin Magazine here in the next day or two. So they say in this article, the actual cut in OPEC Plus's production could be much smaller considering that the alliance is estimated to be around 3.6 million barrels per day below its target production. So they're already 3.6 million barrels below their quota. And if they make a 2 million barrel cut to their quota, it doesn't matter. They're still 1.6 million barrels per day below their quota already. So it doesn't really matter. And the next paragraph here, most, well, let me say this. Arriving at the OPEC Plus meeting in Vienna, the first in-person meeting of the alliance since March of 2020, the energy minister of the UAE said that OPEC Plus is a, quote, technical organization when asked whether the U.S.-UAE relations risk being damaged because of a large production cut. Most officials from the OPEC producers said any cut would be a technical, not a political decision, and cited a risk of recession for cuts as they entered the OPEC headquarters in Vienna. So I think this is a, all a bunch of fear mongering. I, I don't think anything's going to really happen from this quota cut that is coming out of OPEC. They're already producing way below their quota and we could see some marginal differences, but uh, that's it. Actually, if you pull up the last slide, please, Chris, this shows the quota and the production. And as you can see in August, they were producing um, way below almost 4 million barrels below their headline quota. So if they cut by 2 million, it's not going to be that big a deal. Okay. CK back to you, man. What are your thoughts? So, I mean, really what you're saying is that there, the market demand for their oil was below their previously set quota. So they're just readjusting their quota to try to be accurate. And that's what yes. the comment on it, a technical decision. I mean, when you, again, I'm not an expert here. So, you know, please take what I say with a, a massive grain of salt. But it is hilarious to see like these sort of like headlines used for political purposes, right? Like the lack of understanding is effectively being, you know, is effectively being taken advantage of for political purposes. And you see that from the West a lot. It makes you rethink, <laughs> you know, <laughs> what they're selling you like i really do think it's this is another example of the tide you know pulling up and you know western leader getting caught once again with their pants down completely and the fact that the market is actually driving all of this and everyone's just you know trying to maintain the narrative or whatever yeah one thing i i noticed too was the reaction from the white house on this like Biden apparently got really upset and he was talking about, oh, in November now we're going to release 10 million barrels of oil in November that they hadn't scheduled to release out of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. But they should know, they should know exactly what we just talked about here, that this is a technical decision to readjust the quota. I mean, that kind of makes you wonder, like, are the lights even on? In in the White House, in the strategic planning of, of the administration and uh, even in Western Europe, it, it just seems so incompetent. I mean, from what I've seen, competence is not one of the one of the things that's in strong supply right now amongst political leaders. A good friend, Nolan Bowerly, who who does the breakup with Bitcoin Magazine every single morning, he said politics today is more like Veep than it is the House of Cards. So I find that to be a very interesting analysis of the dynamics. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's all I have for the oil OPEC stuff. I think we covered a ton of ground. So we talked about what the Fed policy, you know, looking into some of the Fed's definitions. We looked into the UN. We went in a detailed examination of the UN report that was calling for changing monetary policy. And then we looked at the OPEC stuff. So I think that was a pretty well-rounded show. No, absolutely. So last question for you. Last question for you, Ansel, is where does Bitcoin price go from here? Are we, I, I see oh, us, you know, chop in here. It's flat. It's painful. 
breaks 20k goes back to 19k you know what are your thoughts i think it there's not a lot i mean i think bears are pretty exhausted so i think it probably will go up and we'll see where the decision point is you know if if this is a bull trap or not but i think it that decision point is higher from here so i think we go higher in the near and medium term all right that'd be good for my bags <laughs> ansel that's all i got man thanks so all much right. for for putting together a great show y'all bitcoin amsterdam next week starting wednesday through friday I cannot recommend it enough. There actually will not be a Fed Watch next Wednesday. We're going to be focusing on pushing out and highlighting all the amazing stuff that's happening over at Bitcoin Amsterdam the second half of next week. So don't miss out. Don't have FOMO. Go to Bitcoin Amsterdam. I'll be there. You should too. You guys can find me at CK underscore Snarks. Ansel, you want to close this out? Where can people find you? Yeah, so if you guys will miss FedWatch next week, I know it will be a hole in your weekly schedule. You can always go and join my Telegram channel, t.me forward slash Bitcoin and Markets. I live stream there almost every day, so you'll get your fill there. You can also find me on Twitter at Ansel Lindner. And that's it, guys. Thank you for having me on once again. What is up, audio listeners? Thank you for enjoying another episode of FedWatch. Down in the show notes, you will find all the appropriate links to our social media the original version of this podcast, and community links. Also, check out BitcoinAndMarkets.com, where I put out a free weekly newsletter every Friday. And there you can also help support the show by signing up to become a paid member. See you next time. Hey guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. Bitcoin Magazine and the team that brought you the world's largest Bitcoin conference is bringing the mission of hyper-Bitcoinization global with the inaugural European gathering this fall. Bitcoin Amsterdam takes place October 12th through 14th at the beautiful Westergaas venue in the heart of the city. Join thousands of Bitcoiners for three days of curated Bitcoin content that is relevant to the emerging Bitcoin scene in Europe and the global movement. Confirmed speakers include Dr. Adam Back, Alex Gladstein, Greg Foss, Ray Youssef, and many, many more. This will be an immersive conference which includes hands-on engagements at our proof-of-workshop stage, as well as exclusive content for VIP whales in the deep. Bitcoin Amsterdam's exclamation point will be a massive Bitcoin party and music festival that you won't want to miss. The European installment of Sound Money Fest takes place on day three of the event, October 14th, and admission is included with GA and whale passes. Check out all the details at b.tc forward slash conference and use promo code BMLive for 10% off. Ticket prices increase on August 21st, so grab your tickets today for €299 for a GA ticket and €3,499 for VIP whale passes. The censorship-resistant issue of the Bitcoin Magazine print edition is available now. Grab your copy at your local Barnes & Noble store or head on over to the Bitcoin Magazine store and use promo code BMLive to get 10% off of your order today.